Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm -mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And please stay tuned after this episode for a few minutes of mindfulness with Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass. Enjoy! Gina Juni is a second-generation biodynamic farmer and winemaker. Gina started Lady of the Sunshine in 2017, which focuses on regenerative, organic, and biodynamic farming in pursuit of making natural wines that reflect the purity of the place they come from. Gina also farms full-time the 6.5-acre Shen Vineyard, located in the Edna Valley Appalachian. Since her takeover in 2018, the vineyard is now a Demeter-certified biodynamic vineyard. Gina and her husband, Mikey, run Scar of the Sea and Lady of the Sunshine together out of their winery in San Luis Obispo, California. Welcome, Gina. Welcome. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like since the inception of this podcast, we've been like, we got to get Gina. We got to get Gina. So I'm like, (laughs) I'm so excited to finally talk to you. Oh, that's the biggest compliment. And I've run to your uh, podcast. I've already told you that I've listened to almost every episode. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. So unlike many of our guests, you actually grew up in the wine business. So we would love to hear about your upbringing and how you got into it. And did you always want to do it? Or was it, you know, what was the evolution? Yeah, of course. I grew up in Southern California, actually, in Huntington Beach. My parents moved our family in the year 2000 up to Placerville, Hmm. uh, which is in Northern California, situated between Sacramento and South Lake Tahoe off of Highway 50. We bought 92 acres of land, used to be old cattle ranching land with a 1950s house on it. The land was completely wild. No one had lived there for the past 10 years before we were there. My parents moved our family in order to join the wine industry. They were self-taught. They had gotten into wine originally just from tasting groups and kind of the rabbit hole we all fall into once we discover wine. Uh, Oh, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) But they went full in. And looking back on their journey, it's actually super inspiring that they took that risk and leap of faith, moving our family with two young, small children from Orange County up to the mountains, which was a very different environment for us. But as a kid, it was, you know, an enchanted forest. We spent our summers climbing trees and collecting quartz rocks. I think we were young enough at the time to where it felt really exciting. And it definitely was for our family at that time. In 2001, my parents planted 15 acres of grapes, and then we started construction on the winery. 20 years later now, my parents are still farming and making wine. It was really early on, though, that my dad discovered biodynamic farming, especially since we lived on the property. And as kids riding our bikes through the vineyard, our dogs chasing my dad, you know, behind the tractor. It was a small hub where we lived and worked in the same place. And so it was through uh, one of my dad's really great friends, Philip Hart, who has Ambeth Estate up here on the Central Coast in Templeton. He sent my dad tons of material on biodynamic farming and natural wine and really was the person who got my dad into biodynamics. Wine was always something that was so available to me because of my parents and their careers and where we grew up, that it was something I definitely had to come around to 
on my own time. I was always drawn to science and biology, and it was my dad who really put it in my ear, you know. Fermentation is all microbiology, (laughs) and vines are just like, you know, any other plant. And so it was really him kind of in my ear, you know, over years chipping away at me that I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. But I started my education at college studying biology at Sonoma State. And then it really wasn't until I was 21 where I came back to wine on my own. I started working for a tasting room in the Russian River Valley, was exposed to Pinot Noir for the very first time. Um, My family grows Rhone varietals. So it was was something completely different to me. And then being freshly 21 in the wine industry too, I had this new superpower. (laughs) (laughs) And then I could find, you know, uh, my own rabbit hole to go down in wine. But then from there, I... I, uh, changed my major to winemaking. And then kind of that's when the door opened wide open and then pursued winemaking for my major. Yeah. I was just going to say, leave it to Pinot Noir to like, (laughs) you know, seal the deal. Well, you know, first of all, I think it's so funny for us because Liz and I both have fathers who are scientists and ended up in wine. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So I think there's there's a lot that's interrelated that we don't talk about so much. Yeah, Um, that's true. Oh, yeah, of course. And I mean, it's my favorite part still to this day. It's understanding, you know, what's going on in a fermentation and and why a wine smells a certain way and everything that's happening on such a micro scale. I think that's also why I'm so drawn to biodynamics as well, because the whole entire focus of what we're doing in the vineyard is to put energy back into the micro level of what's going on in the soil, in the humus layer on the microbial level. So, well, so tell us. Tell us what biodynamic farming is. <laughs> Where do you even begin? Where do we want to begin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah, right. I mean, um, it's a complete rabbit hole, again. And my definition of biodynamics is very much an interpretation based on my own path of learning and the resources I've been exposed to and the different environments and people who have influenced me in my journey through biodynamics. But if we're talking about the origins of biodynamics, we cannot not talk about Rudolf Steiner. Biodynamics came from his original agricultural lectures back in the 1920s. So this was in a world post World War I, which was from 1914 to 1918, where we had this era of industrial revolution. There was all of a sudden all of these new mechanical tools and chemical tools that were introduced into the agricultural industry. And specifically in Europe, they were introduced to first, I believe. And this is where farmers saw their soils and farms vitality degrading rapidly, but they'd never seen that before. And so they really took to Steiner's lectures that outlined the dangers of farming in this way and pulled from what he outlined and actually applied it to their farms. And so they were really the ones who took the teachings and applied it in a way that was practical that we've been able to evolve on since then. There's been many people that have been super influential to the biodynamic teachings along the way that have helped evolve these ideas, like Peter Proctor and Maria Thun. But basically what biodynamic farming is, is it's a holistic approach that views the farm as a closed system. So this means we're minimally dependent on imported materials to the farm. It's this idea of totality. So we're viewing the farm as one whole organism. I think the best example for this is like if you think about a wild forest. It's 
something that occurs naturally in nature, where feed and fertility are generated through the recycling of organic materials that the forest itself generates. And so we're trying to create this system that exists in nature and not naturally in agriculture that is this self-sustainable system. Mm -hmm. The real focus we put on the farm is building the humus layer of the soil. That's like what's the most important pinnacle uh, principle. (laughs) Why why is that so important? Um, Well, the humus layer is the top two inches of the soil surface. And so this is where we have the most intrinsic layer of life where everything above the soil and below the soil comes and meets and interacts together. Mm. This is where, you know, seeds sprout and develop their root systems. This is where microbes intermingle with those root systems with the mycorrhizae. And then this is also where we have birds and anything that's above ground come and search for food in that same layer. So we have this really highly active zone of the soil. And if you look at conventional and unfortunately what's called traditional farming, traditional farming treats this section of the soil as a sponge. This is really the idea of input farming where, you know, soil isn't this living thing that has this powerful ability to digest. It's really just a space to hold water and fertilizer for growing food. But the humus layer is really the most fragile part of life of the farm that gets so overworked in conventional farming. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's just it's so nice to hear your enthusiasm. You know, I think just to kind of cover some of the basics that people say a lot. Like when I first learned about biodynamic farming, I was told it's like organic farming but kind of more intense and also you like dance around a cow horn and bury it. And I was like that doesn't seem right. Um, so can you, can you speak a little bit about the, the different treatments and what that's for? Yeah, of course. I mean, you mean as far as like the different elements of biodynamic farming for like preps and compost and whatnot? Yeah. Just, I just think it's important to like demystify it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. I really do think it needs to be just demystified. And that's why when I like to talk about biodynamics, I want to do it on a practical level because as a farmer, you are trying to take these ideas and implement them into your farm. You need them to have, I guess, results is is the word I'm looking for, but you need to see changes over time in, in applying this. I already talked about the humus layer and there's a handful of different things we do on the farm to enhance this zone of life. You know, we're using compost, we're making our own compost on site, which is It's made of 60% pumice. So everything we press at the winery, we bring back to the vineyard. And that becomes the bulk of our compost pile. And then we're also collecting cow manure, which is another 40% addition to the compost to add organic matter and all those healthy microbes back in to decompose. We are using compost tea sprays. This comes from a series of certain different things we can do on the property. So as far as the horns, I would love to demystify this because horns are used um, for multiple reasons. I like to think of it also as a traditional homage to um, how it's always been done. But horns themselves, when they're intact on the cow, they actually circulate blood flow through it. They're connected to to the sinuses of the cow as well. And they're made of bone, which is high in silica and also calcium. Hmm. When they are harvested, they become hollow once dried out and they create a vessel that we can insert 
materials into and basically ferment or decompose underground. So it's this idea of it's a, a vessel that can hold something that's open on one side to allow microbes into it to interact and commingle with whatever material you put inside and bury underground. And then also, it's also something that's not going to break down over time that we can reuse and recycle as well. And that, I guess, doesn't add, you know, harmful materials into the earth, that it's all naturally occurring good stuff. Exactly. We're, t- we're taking something that would maybe be waste. You think about a farmer who has a cow that he's he slaughtered to use all the pieces and the cows is the, excuse me, the cow horn is something that might not be edible. And so this is a way of repurposing it to use again on the farm. And in terms of the cow manure, are you careful to get manure? I assume that from a cow who was pasture raised and wasn't giving chemicals as well, because then it would be counterproductive to the actual. Of course, it's just like cooking. You want to start the purest ingredient possible. If we're trying to use cow manure to put in a horn for our prep 500, which we'll then use for a compost tea spray, we want to make sure it's rich in microbial life, starting from, you know, stage one of sourcing it and then using it to then transform underground in the cow horn to then pull out three months later once it's transformed so we can uh, repurpose it to use for compost tea. How big are these horns? Like how many of them do you have to use for? Yeah, they're, they range in size depending on the cow, but they're anywhere from six inches to a foot long. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah, they can get quite big. And the rate of application is you want about one horn per acre. Okay. So we're working with such minute quantities of material, but it is this idea of, you know, it's not about the amount of material you're putting back into the vineyard, but really what we're doing when we're making these compost teas is it's, I like to think of it as an inoculant, basically. You know, we drink kombucha to feed healthy microbes and bacteria back into our gut. The soil of the vineyard is the stomach of the vineyard, and we really want to inoculate it with as many good microbes as possible so that it has the ability to digest at its best ability. See, that's amazing. That's so much better than the explanation I first got. Um, the other thing that you've said to me about biodynamics before is that, um, you know, people are so weird about there being different days in terms of when you plant and when you harvest and they're related to the lunar cycle. And I think you said something like, I mean, we all understand how the moon affects the tides. Why is it weird that it would affect the land as well? A hundred percent. I mean, if you look back at the evolution of humans relationship with not just farming, but food in general. Humanity used to be in this era where we moved and migrated with the seasons because that's what the animals did. We hunted and gathered for survival. We are in this era now of technology and not just digital technology, but we have these tools of you know the plow and the wheel and all these things that have advanced our relationship with mother nature to where now we have become so disconnected to the thought that there are bigger powers out there in the cosmos, in the solar system, that could have an effect on what we are growing and eating. Like you said, the moon's gravitational force on the ocean creates our tides. The moon also has this ability to push and pull sap flow in a vine or push and pull a wine in a barrel. 
that can create different effects. And as far as timing of events in the vineyard with these cycles, you know, for example, if we were to be pruning, you think about if you have the sap flow being pulled up through the extremities of the vine, you don't want to be removing those canes from the vine when they're full of sap and carbohydrates. We want to be timing it in the event where you have sap flow moving downward into the roots where the vine is storing in dormancy all of its carbohydrates and energy. And so really it's the same idea of the gravitational pull for the tides is also applied to many different parts of farming and wine as well. Do you think that women inherently understand this better? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Might be a little more in tune. <laughs> I mean, I don't sleep as well with a full moon. I mean, there, it, yeah. I mean, I think if you're at all kind of sensitive and and in tune with your body and and what's happening, I've noticed a lot of things. And of course, we have our menstrual cycles and all those things. So I also yeah. think it's something that you become more in tune with the more aware you are. Yeah. Of it, it's easy to ignore it, but once you do tap into it, I think you develop a sensitivity which can be good or bad, but yeah, depending (laughs) when you're trying to fall asleep, it's not so great, but But I also don't sleep as well the night before I get my period because my, uh, it's hormonal, you Mm -hmm. know? And so once, you know, I don't always equate the two, but then I'll be like, why am I not sleeping well? And I'll look and it'll, you know, sort of like, why is this wine not tasting good today? Oh, it's a root day. Mm -hmm. That's why. I know. Mm-hmm. That really does happen. That just happened with John Payne. Yep. I was like, everything's kind of tight. And he was like, oh, let me check the biodynamic calendar. Well, it's a root day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so if people have more questions, are there any um, resources that you especially like about biodynamic farming? Yes, of course. I have many. <laughs> <laughs> a book that I have lived by on my farming journey is the Monty Walden's biodynamic wine book. The first section of it is really wonderful because it goes through in detail all of the biodynamic preparations, whether it's 500 or 501, and then all of the compost preps and all of their other functions, how you can use them on the farm as well. Um, That's been really crucial to my own practical application in farming. There's another book called Sacred Agriculture. It's the Alchemy of Biodynamics by Dennis Klokek, I believe it's pronounced. And that's a bit of a harder read. <laughs> I think I've read, read the first chapter like four times, but it's it's full of good stuff. Very interesting if you're into the alchemy aspect of biodynamics. But then there's also the Josephine Porter's online bookstore. It's full of wonderful books on composting and how to apply biodynamics to your own garden on a smaller scale. There's tons of resources there as well. Cool. Well, I know what Matt's getting for a present this week. <laughs> <laughs> the presents um, you give your spouse that are really for you. Totally. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But I think honestly, the biggest resource that I've had available to me in my life is going and visiting other biodynamic farms and talking with other biodynamic farmers because people who use biodynamics want to talk about biodynamics. (laughs) They tend to be very passionate people and believe strongly in it too. And so I want to encourage everyone to do that if if that's something that's available to you as well. Yeah. I would love to hear, it sounds like, did you convert Shen Vineyard from being non-biodynamic to biodynamic? And if so, I would love to hear your observations about both the vines and the wines 
pre and post and how you've found it's really? Yeah, of course. So I started farming the Shun Vineyard in 2018, the very beginning of the season. I had found this vineyard through a connection of working my first job in Edna Valley. I met the family that originally planted the vineyard and they had been taking care of it with the help of a uh, management company. They had been slowly working towards getting it to organically farmed, but it was really lacking the attention it needed in such a high mildew pressure coastal environment that they could not farm it well organically, unfortunately. And that's kind of the problem with small vineyards, especially when you don't have someone there all the time to look after it. It gets forgotten about and it gets put on the bottom of a totem pole in a big valley that's full of grapes. And so the family reached out to me and I started working with them in 2018. At that point, it had been farmed organic for the last few years prior to my arrival, but there had been no biodynamic application to it at that point. They let me run with complete freedom and dive into biodynamics. And so it was that year when I first started that I started also working with the Demeter Association to work for biodynamic certification which is a three-year process. And so basically, we got the vineyard off of synthetic pesticides. We transitioned to using topical sprays only that don't go into the system of the vine. Basically, anything to control powdery mildew, which is our biggest threat here on the coast, is... Treating powdery mildew because of the humidity, probably. Yeah, exactly. We have such high humidity humidity on the coast here that... That's our biggest challenge, especially with organic farming. And so transitioning from something that's systemic that goes into the system of the vine into spraying something that has more of a topical surface contact control for powdery mildew, getting away from using herbicides, cultivating the weeds under the vine mechanically, or even grazing is another option. Then also there's the compost aspect. How can we build the top soil in the vineyard as well? using PrEP 500, which is the cow manure in the horns. That's used as an inoculant, like we talked about earlier. And then also 501, which we didn't talk about earlier, which is the silica spray. So this helps enhance the photosynthesis in the vineyard. One of the biggest things as well is dealing with invasive weeds. And so what I've really seen transform at the Shen Vineyard is when I first took it over, it was fully taken over by malva and mustard which can have really big tap roots. They grow extremely tall and vigorous and they tend to overcrowd out other native grasses and plants that are within the habitat. And so by cover cropping, this has really helped us control the invasive weeds and also introduce legumes back to the property and other beneficial plants that can help sequester carbon and help build up the topsoil as well. And what would you say in terms of the the wine, like, was it more vibrant after? Was it, I mean, I've heard a lot of biodynamic farmers say there's just um, energy in the wine after they convert than before. But I would love to hear your observations. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to make the wine before I was involved with farming, but I feel like I have seen a transformation in the wine's since 2018. There is what you say an energy that does carry through with the wine. I think it's almost expressed more in a sense of purity of place. You know, my job in the vineyard is to intervene only when necessary. Mm. 
and really let mother take nature lead the way. And then I'm there to just steer it, to keep it on track. I have the same approach in my winemaking as well, you know, using needed yeast, using no new oak, all neutral French oak. And I really want the purity of the place to speak through in the wine. But I see that in the Chardonnay, I get this real mineral streak of this chalky rock that's present on the property. Same with the Pinot as as well. I'm using 100% whole cluster. um, And also this chalkiness really speaks through as well. Mm. It has this, yeah, nuance to it that carries a sense of place. I don't know how else to describe (laughs) it. That's a perfect way to describe Um, it. But when you can visit the vineyard, and I'm so happy that Emily has been able to visit there, you know, walking that vineyard and then tasting the wines after you see this, you feel and see this connection to a place. So, And with Celica, I've always wondered if you're doing it in Europe where the temperatures are usually colder or at least less consistent, say, than California, are you altering how much of that you're, because you don't really need to attract ripeness. And maybe I have it wrong why one uses the silica spray. Mm-hmm. But this I've always wondered, like, do you use less or how does it work? Um, yeah, I'm glad you bring this up. For, especially in our climate, um, especially after last year, you know, we had the most severe heat waves we've ever experienced. We had temperatures up to 120, wow. which broke here on the coast. You have to be extremely careful when you use your silica spray. For us, I tend to use it early on in the season, especially since we are so coastal, we have really foggy, cool spring seasons. And that's when I tend to use it the most. Spraying it before flowering really helps to drive photosynthesis so we can build up enough leaves to support our flowering as well as after flowering as well. But I've over the past few years, I've only found myself to be using it once a year annually. I typically would consider using it again closer to harvest if we had a cool vintage towards that end of, of the season. But again, over the last few years, that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Well, I know we're all we're all hoping for the perfect vintage for you every year. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you can't actually tell, I think, from drinking your wines. I mean, there's variation between the vintages, but they're so beautiful and in balance no matter what. So yeah, Thank you. whatever you're doing, it's working. Em, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're at a party and you just see that woman who seems so super cool, she's empowered, authentic, chic, fun, and she beats to her own drum. I do. That's what Superbird's like. I love Superbird. We originally found these incredible Paloma cocktails through our buddy Richard Betts, who spoke about them on this podcast. Matt and I ordered some last spring and have kept them on hand ever since. It's so easy that they come in a can, but don't sacrifice quality. Superbird is 100% handcrafted blue agave tequila from locally harvested and roasted Mexican agave piñas. It's been granted the official Tequila Blanco 100% puro agave seal and has no added sugars or artificial ingredients. Superbird is sweetened with natural agave nectar and fresh grapefruit juice and mixed with sparkling water. They're also about to release a Superbird Free, where the tequila is aged in oak barrels to take on flavor. It's a tequila soda with grapefruit essence and sparkling water, and it's only 95 calories. The labels are amazing, too. They're both beautiful and badass, like Superbird itself. Listeners of our podcast can receive free shipping by using the code FINELINE at checkout on their site, sprbrd.com. 
That's fine line for free shipping at sprbrd.com. We are so excited to announce our involvement with Steamboat Food and Wine Festival, September 23rd to 26th. This is an incredibly fun weekend in charming Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and it's filled with seminars on all matters of food and wine, plus chef-led wine dinners and daily grand tastings and demos. This year, the focus goes from larger, more recognizable brands of wine to smaller boutique and sustainably farmed wines. Steamboat Food and Wine will also be featuring chefs who care as much about locally sourced food as they do. So this year, we'll see people like Mercantile's Alex Sedell and Black Belly's Josea Rosenberg and many more, plus wine professionals like our dear friend and colleague, Master Som Brett Zimmerman. Steamboat Food and Wine is also doing the WSET Level 1 training at the festival this year. They do offer industry discounts, but encourage both pros and wine enthusiasts to join. We will be interviewing celebrity chefs and wine professionals all weekend live from the festival on our favorite topic, how they balance their love of food and wine with their health. So come on by and please do say hello while you're there. Tickets go on sale May 17th, and our listeners can receive 10% off their tickets using the code FINELINE10 at SteamboatFoodAndWine.com. That's 10% off a weekend you will never forget with the code FINELINE10 at SteamboatFoodAndWine.com. See you this fall. So let's move on to, you know, your physical and mental health, which we always talk about here. Um, You know, we've talked about how there can be some really um, excessive behaviors when you work around alcohol, when you, you know, eat at restaurants a lot, when you travel a lot. Can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and how that's been for you? Yes, of course. I love that the podcast name is called The Fine Line because it is such a delicate fine line that we all walk within the industry. You know, I think especially with being a business owner, um, as well as balancing my husband's business as well. We run our businesses together. We farm a six and a half acre vineyard. It's so easy to become overworked and drained. And we've really had to dial in and prioritize taking time for ourselves and taking time together at that, but to step away and not bring work home with us and create a space where we can enjoy food and wine separate from our careers. Food and wine is so ingrained in who we are as people. And so it is something that we love to enjoy together. But we also really care about what food we do eat and put into our bodies. And same with wine. I think for me, especially with having such a physical job of farming, yoga has been something that's been a lifesaver for me, especially physically and mentally. The stress of the industry of making wine and selling wine and farming and being at the mercy of mother nature. It's a lot of these factors that seem out of your control, but being able to recenter and refocus (laughs) and also have a, an outlet to exert, you know, excess energy and exercise is something that's super important, especially for my own mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And even just doing counter poses from all the time you sit on the tractor, you know? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I'd love to know how you met Mikey. I don't know the story. Oh, you don't? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's so sweet. Tell us. I mean, he's one of the best guys out there. So such a nice coupling of two wonderful people. Thank you. We met back in 2014. I had just recently transferred to Cal Poly for the Wine and Bit program here in San Luis Obispo. And Mikey had worked at a local winery called Shamazal before he started Scar of the Sea. 
he had stayed friends with the the GM and the crew and everyone that had worked at the winery. And I came along a few years later and was hired to just work the tasting room on the weekends during college. We were set up by my boss, I think, the first week I started working there. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Mikey came in for a tasting and I poured wine for him unbeknownst that I was being set up. And then, yeah, he guessed for my phone number and we dated that summer. And we actually parted ways before harvest. And then I ended up graduating and leaving the area. I went and worked abroad for a few years and then came back full circle to uh, the Central Coast a few years later. And that's when we reconnected again. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I met Mikey in 2016, I remember him talking about you. And I met Mikey on the trip where I met my husband, Matt. Um, I remember that. Oh, my gosh. And I remember him being like, well, there's this girl. Like, I don't know. It was so sweet. He was like, I don't really know if it's going to happen. But, like, I keep thinking about her. It was so nice. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. My heart. (laughs) I have have to uh, credit him because I was always afraid to surf at Rincon in Santa Barbara because I thought it was – this like hardcore locals place. And we were with Emily and Jenica and I were visiting Raj and Mikey was over for dinner as well. And he's like, no, 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 you, you have to go. It's no big deal. Like their family's there. And I mean, that's the break that's closest to my parents' house. And it was a game changer. I went there. I was like, it's so chill here and lovely. Like, thank God he kind of gave me permission to like, go, like, go try it. You know, because it's really been a great spot for us. And Gina, you don't know Liz well enough yet, but anything that helps her be a happier surfer is like, <laughs> you know. I know. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Well, Mikey, Mikey was a lifeguard forever growing up. And so he's taken me out surfing a few times, but I am I have such a fear, <laughs> even though he's a lifeguard. I'm like, I'm with the lifeguard. I should not be scared. It's um, the scariest sport I've ever done. So understandably. understandably. Yeah. I mean, I grew up near Lake Tahoe, so that's very different. From yeah. The <laughs> well, circling back to time for yourself and time for you guys together, you know, I think that's something that it's easier to say, like, we all know we need to do this, but then, you know, you're in your day, there's a certain amount that has to get done, you know, and it feels like for me, it can feel neglectful right? To say like, I'm just going to take this hour and do this thing that feels good for me. So how did you, how do you get through that? Man, it's a, it's a daily practice. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I, I think something that's really resonated recently is that resting is productive and not having this constant anxiety of like, I need to be productive. I need to be doing something. I need to be answering emails, you know, our businesses and what we do is like, it's just a never ending mountain of things piling up. It feels like, but you know, the day has to come to an end and you have to go home and you have to eat. And so it's like, okay, well let's come together. Let's, let's take time for ourselves. Let's cook together. Let's open a nice bottle of wine together. I mean, we got a boat so we would stop working and go (laughs) on the ocean. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) We got a dog so we would stop working and go, you know, to the beach more and go hiking. And so it's these certain things that we've had to put into our lives to help us and remind us to stop working and, and find that balance. Yeah. Dogs are great because they make you get outside every day. You know, like you can't not walk your dog. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sometimes we need to be forced to do those (laughs) things in a way. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'd love to hear about anything you're excited about right now. I mean, it can be personal, professional, universal, all of the above. I think the thing I'm most excited about right now is that spring farming is wrapping up. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a... It's been a brutal spring. Um, I, I always forget how busy this season is, but we're finally coming to a slower time, which is nice. All the, the pruning, the thinning is done. We're halfway through most of our tractor work and now we're in bloom. And so it's it's this feeling of a accomplishment that we've made it this far. <laughs> but we just uh, went through bottling our spring wines just a few weeks ago. So we have our new released wines of our 2020s out in the wild for the first time, which has been a really good feeling. I think we, I'm really excited about our new bottling again. <laughs> it like we just bottled, but we're going to be bottling again at the end of June, which I'll be bottling the new Shen wines, which I'm very excited about as well. And then I feel like harvest is right around the corner. <laughs> which well, seems at least it's about. seasonal. So you have a like intensity in the spring and you can kind of yeah. Take it down in the summer a bit, relatively exactly. speaking. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. great. That's great. Oh, this is so great. I I just want to like go back and keep asking questions about biodynamics. I know. Go on <laughs> Please do. On. We can come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. Thank you for sharing all of this stuff. I yeah. Think. It was great to have you. We've Thank been dying you. to talk to you. So we appreciate it. And um, we'll link your wineries in our notes so people can find you. And I assume you guys have wine clubs and things that people can subscribe to. And so the wine just arrives on the door. Yeah. Anyone who has not tried these two wineries, you have to. They're incredibly special. Truly. And, And much more sort of, I would say, old world in their um, profile Mm -hmm. than, you know, just very balanced and great acidity and not too just gentle approach. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll link your Instagram too, because that's always <laughs> nice to see you guys in the wild. You yeah. Know? Everyone can see the Shen Vineyard, even if they can't visit quite yet. Yeah. Follow along. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. Thank you so much, Liz and Emily. Hopefully there'll be some like wine festivals or something we can see you at. Yeah. Yes. Mikey and I were just trying to scheme, um, yesterday about when the next time is we can come out to Colorado. Yay. We will. Ask, ask Paul about steamboat food and wine. I just connected him the other day with the, uh, the founder and I don't, I have no idea what he but, has cooking, but, but we'll be yeah. there. So you guys exactly. should be there. That's the point. We'll be there. So. <laughs> so Wonderful. Yeah. We'll connect the seed. Yeah. Great. Great. Awesome. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please do rate and review and subscribe and head over to our website where you can find great promo codes from our sponsors and donate to support the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. This is Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass here on the Fine Line Podcast to share a few thoughts on bringing more mindfulness into your everyday life. Here in the U.S., the summer season has kicked off into gear this week and we're also a full 15 months into COVID. So I wanted to hover a bit over that space between the interior lockdown circumstances we've all experienced 
and the undeniable pull outside into warmer weather, more hours of sunshine, and deeper lungfuls of fresh air. In the wine industry, we're taught to analyze and investigate a glass of wine by using our senses. First, we see and describe the color of the wine in the glass, then we smell and describe the aromas, then we taste and describe the flavors. This week, I'd like to take that process and invite you to apply it to our collective emergence back out into nature, into our exterior environments. Let's start with our sense of sight. Instead of describing the color of the wine in our glass, maybe noticing the light and the shade created by the leaves on the tree outside our window or the one we pass on the sidewalk. Maybe pausing to notice one individual leaf and then zooming out to notice that leaf's family or other leaves on their branch, and then zooming out even more to notice that branch's family of other branches on the tree. We can do this inside our homes too, maybe with a bowl of tomatoes, noticing one single tomato and its color and shape, oval with a stem or just the scar of the stem, red or purple or yellow, and then noticing that single tomato surrounded in the bowl by its community of other tomatoes and the different colors and shapes of those, taking our time to notice. When you're ready, moving on to our sense of smell. Last weekend, a friend came by for breakfast and brought a glass jar of gardenias she'd picked from her garden. They've been sitting on my kitchen counter for days now, and their aromas are still wafting through the kitchen and my office nearby. So maybe playing with the time and the space of smell. Maybe noticing the smells in one room and five feet or so away, noticing the smells in another room. Maybe also noticing the smells of a different but nearby place at different times of the day. When you wake up in the morning, for example, and walk into your kitchen for the first time, relative to when you visit it for lunch in the middle of the day, relative to when you turn off the lights for the last time at night. Noticing how it smells. Maybe playing with that time and the space of smell inside and outside our homes. And finally, when you're ready, moving on to the sense of taste and touch and noticing flavors and textures. As wine people, we might think, I got this, but there's a whole universe, especially of texture, waiting for us. So playing with that a bit and experimenting and noticing, for example, the feel of a handkerchief next to the feel of a napkin, noticing the feel of the fur on the dog's tail next to the feel of the fur on the dog's snout, noticing the feel on your lips when you kiss the top of your child's head and then when you kiss your lover's lips, noticing the feel of the air outside against the skin on your arms when you wear a tank top and then against the air against the skin on your face when it's raining. There's a whole universe of sensation within a few inches or feet of where we are right this second. This week, as we dive into summer, I invite you to take the time to sense that universe that's at hand. This is Kathy Hoya from A Balance Class. <laughs>